welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Clovis Gallen, a special education teacher and the boys' varsity basketball coach at York High School. In this episode, we discuss the near impossibility of caring for special education students during a pandemic due to the lack of in-person interactions. We also touch on what closing a school means for children living in an economically depressed area, the importance of public education, racism in the Trump era, mentorship, and the life lessons that Clovis has learned from the game of basketball. This episode is timely because just recently, data was released showing the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 is having on African Americans across the country. Indeed, the figures are shocking. In Louisiana, for example, which is home to the fourth most cases in the United States, 70% of those cases are African Americans. Detroit, which is nearly 80% black, has the most concentrated deaths in the entire state of Michigan and accounts for 40% of total deaths in the state. In Chicago, African Americans account for 70% of total cases and half the total number of deaths in Illinois, despite making up just 30% of the population. There are a number of interwoven explanations for why this is the case. First, African Americans face a higher risk of exposure to the virus because they are more often confined to working in low-paying, essential industries without the ability to work from home. Indeed, only 20% of black workers reported being eligible to work from home during the pandemic, which is 10% lower than white Americans. Second, research has shown at this point a high prevalence of COVID-19 among those suffering from obesity, high blood pressure, and diabetes. Risk factors that are far more common among African Americans. Indeed, the virus is known to take a harsher toll on those with these underlying health issues, and many hospitals are only testing those admitted for critical care. This means that African Americans are not only more likely to contract the disease, but they are less likely to receive medical treatment on the back end. Just to pause on this issue for a second, our campaign released last year a policy proposal calling for the implementation of community health centers across the country, which would be federally funded and locally staffed and would provide resources across the country in low-income areas for maintaining lifestyles of healthy living. The economic inequality in our country means that those living in poverty, which is disproportionately African-American, do not have access to nutrition programs, exercise programs, after-school care, pre-K child care, and as a result, suffer from risk factors like obesity, high blood pressure, and diabetes. This is an institutional flaw in our economy that has severe consequences for the healthcare system, and we see that playing out in real time right now. The third issue is that 
the risks right now are significantly exacerbated by racial inequities in our healthcare system, including facility closures and caps on public health insurance plans like Medicaid and Medicare. African Americans are twice as likely to lack health insurance compared to white Americans and more likely to live in medically underserved areas where primary care is either sparse or prohibitively expensive. And last, the government's responses during the pandemic have been discriminatory, whether intentional or otherwise, because as the virus first spread, the CDC initially released testing guidelines that prioritized those who had traveled abroad. The knock-on effect of this decision was that black patients in low-income areas like Brooklyn or Chicago or Detroit were not tested as quickly as the more affluent white Americans who had the means to travel. Martin Luther King once said that of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. Confronting these racial inequities should be a top priority, not just during the pandemic, but during ordinary times as well. Doing so begins with listening to leaders like Clovis, who not only study the issues, but live them on a day-to-day basis as well. Education, healthcare, the economy, every sector of our society needs to be infused with a heavy dose of racial justice. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Clovis Gallen. All right, I'm here with Clovis Gallen. Clovis, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. So um, I've heard your name been at this campaign now for over a year, and your name is one that even before we met, I was hearing all the time because, you know, you've, you're a coach, you're a teacher, you grew up in, in York. Um, before we dive into um, your role as an educator right now, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to pursue a path of teaching and coaching? Um, sure. Uh, I'm a native Yorker, uh, born and raised here. Uh, went to all the York City Elementary School, uh, came up to the York City School System, went to Ferguson Elementary, Smith Middle School, ultimately graduated from William Penn Senior High School, um, went on to uh, uh, Lincoln University, the first historically black college and university in, in the country, established in 1854, uh, played basketball for four years, um, studied, was a history education major, uh, graduated, and, you know, on, on that path, I kind of, you know, knew I was going to eventually come back to York and, and, and want to be able to try to uh, inspire uh, the young people of York to, uh, you know, understand that the, that the world is much bigger than this place and they can accomplish anything they want. Um, and, and here I am, you know, now I'm, I'm, I came back and uh, I've been coaching. I've been teaching now for this is my 20th year at, at York City, and this is my 19th year as a, as a coach, uh, my fourth as, as the head coach of, of the varsity program. Uh, and um, special education, right? Yes, yes. Has that been for your entire 20 years? Uh, almost my entire career. Uh, it, special ed is uh, the we have a very large population of special education students, so uh, I have a certification in, in special education. Um, I, I have a master's in multicultural education as well. 
from Eastern University, and uh, there was a dire need for more special educators uh, in our school district. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 it was a safe landing place. Uh, I love the job that I have. Um, I have emotional support students, and it's very, very uh, rewarding. Uh, I have students that are across the scale uh, when you talk about, um, you know, achievement levels or, or IQ, uh, but their, their biggest uh, struggle is, is uh, their behavioral issues. So those are the things that we target, those that we put in goals in place for the kids to be able to manage those behaviors. Uh, a lot of them have gone through some kind of traumatic experience that's really uh, influenced their, their upbringing and their, their decision-making uh, in, in the school setting. What's, uh, so, you know, pre-pandemic, can you give us a sense for what your daily schedule looked like? You know, what type of interactions did you have with the students? How many students were in your class? Did you also have, uh, you know, other support in there with you? What was the day-to-day the -day routine like at, at York? Day-to-day uh, -day routine for me uh, would be, you know, arrived at school, I would have a, you know, one class that I would teach for the first period of the day. I have about 18 kids on my caseload. Now, all of those students wouldn't be in my class at the same time uh, for that first period, but I would be responsible for monitoring uh, the progress of those students in all of their classes. Um, and I have mostly junior, mostly seniors on my caseload. I have a few juniors sprinkled in and one sophomore. Uh, and then throughout the day, I would uh, go to their classes and uh, provide those students support in those classes, uh, reach out to the teacher, the regular education teachers to uh, discuss how those students are progressing in their class, monitor their progress through the SAFFIRE program that we have as well. Um, if the student would need uh, a modified assignment or a modified, a test, modified test, uh, I, would, I could assist with that as well. Uh, the students could be pulled from the classroom to get one-on-one -on -one assistance with me. I also have an aide that works in my classroom, so she would also provide one-on-one -on -one support for the students. We provide, we help them with organ organizational skills. Um, you know, a lot of times the students just need an extra boost and or an extra motivation uh, to make it through, especially when they get to their junior and senior year. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much what a typical day would look like. Uh, you know, I would as before mentioned, go into the classroom with the students or typically pull them out of the classroom. We would also meet with them one-on-one with another, um, if some of them had support services like uh, social work services, or I would help them with uh, set up visits with OBR, which is the Office of Vocational Rehabilitation, uh, for uh, to assist the students with what they're going to transition to after high school. Um, but and So it sounds like it's very interpersonal. I mean, you earn or the trust of the students. Oh, absolutely. Day -day, absolutely. Day -day that's, the, basis. that's a big, the biggest thing is to be able to build a rapport with the students. And, uh, you know, the first few weeks of the school year, uh, that's, that's where that's done. And then, you know, I'm also responsible for, uh, their progress monitoring, uh, four times a year. Uh, they're doing their annual IEP review where we revise the IEP or rewrite an IEP for the student. And I'm in constant contact with their parents, uh, and every two to three years, depending on the student's disability, I also have to do a reevaluation. So I work, work closely with the school psychologist. I work very closely with the school social, social worker uh, as well. And so for a position that's inherently interpersonal and requires, you know, one-on-one -on -one interactions, a pandemic and out-of-school requirements seems to me to be the exact opposite of what, you know, you as a professional educator really need to 
be able to connect with these students and help them. And so what has the post-pandemic uh, schedule like been like for you? I mean, are you still maintaining interactions with the students? How are they doing? I mean, what's what's this past month been like? It, it is the by far, I, I know it is the biggest struggle for me and the members of, you know, my team uh, and our kids that the biggest struggle for them is, you know, the, the disconnect that we have now. Uh, because I know because of the personal relationships that I have with the, the relationships that I've established with the students and their families, I know what the background is and what they may be dealing with on a day to day basis at home and how much of a struggle that could be for them. Um, so it's very difficult to provide a lot of the um, related services to the students at this time. Um, you know, uh, the occupational therapy that students may receive. Now, I don't have students that, you know, are multi-disability students, but you think about students who may receive speech therapy or physical therapy or even social work services, all of those related services um, that, you know, are provided to the students in the school setting are now very, very hard to deliver. And those services are often, you know, they're written into the student's individualized education plan. And the law says that that service has to be provided. So it's, at, at this point, at this stage, it's very difficult for it handcuffs the district because uh, you can't go to a student's home and a student can't come to the school. So are you still required to complete IEPs even right now? Yes, we are. Um, we, we have had uh, some virtual meetings with, with parents over the phone, uh, updating their IEPs. I had a reevaluation meeting uh, with a parent last week, and I have a few upcoming uh, within the next week as well. Uh, and we've, we tried, I, the, the information that I received was that our district reached out to the state, and I guess to the, uh, to the people at the federal level, and they are not waiving the guidelines for uh, IEDEA, which is, uh, which is a federal law that requires students receive a free and appropriate public education, basically, FAPE. And, and uh, I guess my biggest harp on it right now is how do you provide updated testing? How do you provide updated progress when you're not seeing the student, you're not able to test the student to get those updated scores? So we were just told to do the best that we can and provide as much information as we can, uh, progress up until the point that school was, you know, physically ended and have the meeting over the phone and, and, and alert the parent that once school is hopefully back in session that, you know, they can come in and sign the paperwork as is and, and we can move on from there. But it's, you know, and, and I, I mean, I, I know the law, but I'm not an attorney. Uh, it, it would it would seem more practical to reach out to the parent and complete what is what we know is a notice of recommended educational placement or a NORREP and ask the parent permission to continue services as they were written in the previous IEP and move on from there. But we've been advised to do other advised to do otherwise because the law won't allow us. There is a um, this is a question I was going to ask you in a little bit, but while we're on the topic, I think it's worth diving into now. Um, There's an article I think it was either today or yesterday talking about how now that we have um, enough data to analyze this reliably, they can see pretty clearly that minorities are suffering more from the pandemic than whites. And that's especially true in urban areas. Um, and so uh, you compound that with the fact that 
Um, you know, 75% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Even in the city of York, the unemployment po population, or, um, the unemployment rate is quite high. You have single parents. You know, we don't have really free access to health care. And so when you take the school system away, you're taking away a lifeline for, for these kids and sending them home to a place where, you know, society hasn't given their parents a chance to have a stable home life. Uh, have you seen a kind of exposure of these deeper structural issues um, that obviously existed before, but perhaps even more so now? I think across the country, we've seen that. I think we've seen, uh, you know, how valuable our, our public educational system, education system is. Uh, we, and it's not just about, you know, receiving that, you know, standardized education that, that, that we're all, we were all afforded as U.S. citizens, but you think about, you know, the kids being able to get two meals a day, at least you get a free breakfast, you get a free lunch because we are such an, we are in an economically depressed area. Uh, then you think about, you know, for many of our athletes, if you stay for study hall after school, you get a meal with that as well. Uh, and then you, you just talk about the structure of the day for students. You know, it's a safe place. Um, they have various uh, resources and pers school personnel that they can reach out to to provide extra supports for them. When you think about the supports for the family uh, that were in place, and a lot of those things came into place because of the school uh, and the school's uh, wraparound, uh, the wraparound services that, uh, you know, stay in close contact with the school that are able to provide, provide those supports for students. All of those things have affected kids. Um, and, 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 you know, you, you worry, you know, you worry about how your kids are doing on a day to day basis mentally. Uh, because I mean, I have a, a, you know, just, I think about two of my students offhand who are, you know, pretty transparent about what goes on in their homes, um, and, and what they have to deal with on a day to day basis and the level of and what they have as a support at home. Uh, so it's, it's a very difficult time for some of our students. And you think about, you know, the homeless population, you think about students who, uh, okay, now we're rolling out a an online model for our students to be able to learn in the home. Well, you think about, okay, a parent who may have seven children in the home and maybe the parent is still having to work on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe they don't have uh, internet or wireless service at home. You know, how much of a support, uh, how, how many supports is that student receiving in the home? So there are a lot of structural things that have fallen by the wayside and it kind of just the school system provided a safety net for those students, and, and it's not there right now. You mentioned your athletes, too. I hadn't thought about the free meal that they would, they would get even saying after school and even, you know, practice and, and just a general focus on athletics. I mean, I even think back to my own, you know, high school experience and basketball was, you know, I, the way I lived my life. Everything I did was around basketball, and to not have that, I even, you know, as someone who, I grew up in a really lucky situation, but to not have that, I would find just really difficult to navigate. What what has been your interactions like with your players? What are they doing right now, and how are you maintaining communication with them? Well, we have a Facebook chat group where you know I message the guys from time to time. Uh, it's it's very difficult for them right now. Now, granted, we our, our season ended uh, two days uh, before, uh, or maybe it was that Wednesday. Um, you know, before the school ended up closing for the, you know, the remainder of the year. Uh, so we were actually still pretty much in season. Like we were still grinding. We were in the second round of the state tournament. Um, 
And, uh, you know, this would be a time for us to like really reflect on our season. You know, we, we would have a, you know, a postseason uh, dinner that would usually be held for us at a location here in the city. We'd recognize our players for their, you know, for their accomplishments. Um, and, you know, they have none of that now. They have no closure. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a difficult time for them. You know, I, I still reach out to them and, and, you know, I had to make sure all of them had their times for their laptop pickup because we, we were not a one-to-one -one district. So uh, somehow the district was able to uh, figure out how to get all of the students a laptop. And I had to message all of them with their, they had a precise appointment time to pick up their laptops to make sure that they could log into the system to make sure that, um, they still have all the classes that they had physically, that they were aligned with um, the Odyssey program that they're on now uh, to make sure that all the courses are going to be uh, aligned with the NCAA Clearinghouse. So the students uh, that, you know, are trying to go on to play at the next level would still be eligible. Um, it's, it's, it's a very trying time for our athletes right now uh, because, I mean, and I think about basketball, um, you know, the 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 it, it's a dead period in the NCAA right now. It's, they've issued a dead period. So this will be a time where some players may go on college visits. They're not allowed to go on any college visits at the time. They can have some phone conversations with coaches and that's it. Um, is a dead period a formal uh, order? Like they is there like no communication? No, allowed or is that they, they are allowed phone calls and that's it. That means at this point they're allowing that. But uh, uh, the dead period would be no no on-campus visits uh and the college coaches can't come to your house they can't come see you work out train or anything uh you know that and then you, know, you think about working out or training there are no gyms available you know uh and the first few days uh after you know our our district shut down uh, i had players message me as a coach I'm, i want to get in the gym can we get in the gym can we i'm like i, I tried guys i actually went to um one of the days um and maybe the first three or four days after the building was shut down, I went in the building to pick up a few things. Uh, and then the very next day I went back to get something and all of our access cards were disabled by the superintendent. They didn't want anybody else in the building. So and that very same day, a couple of players said, coach, can we get in the gym, get a workout? You know, I have two sons at home. Uh, you know, one is a senior this year. He played and he's like, dad, can we go to the gym to work out? Unfortunately, son, you're going to have to go out in the driveway because we can't get in the building right now. So the, the guys, are, I'm sure they're stir crazy. Uh, I, I saw a message from one of my players um, that said that they were going to go play outside and they were trying to get a group of kids to go play at a park today. And I was like, oh, my gosh, just guys, just stay home, follow, follow the orders and stay home and stay safe. How's your um, son holding up? Has he decided where he's going to school yet or is he stuck in that kind of? He's, he's in limbo right now. He hasn't decided, um, you know, he's still trying to put together some film. That's his assignment. He still hasn't done that yet. Uh, put together a, a highlight film of him. Uh, and uh, I've sent some film off to a few schools and, and you know, we're kind of just in a holding pattern. And you know, I think a lot of the high school seniors are like that um, right now, quite a few. This isn't a question I planned on asking you, but as a, um, someone who studies basketball, I'm interested to hear what you say. If you had to, you know, not that these kids are home, if there was like uh, someone from a previous generation who you would tell them to watch, like say, you know, um, I've been doing like, random YouTube deep dives on John Stockton because I'm like, Oh my God, this guy was really good. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, is, is there a player who is not of this generation where you would tell one of your guys to go back and say, Hey, this is someone you should try to emulate your game off of. 
Uh, it's actually quite a few. Uh, it depends on what position you play. If you're a point guard. Uh, if you were a point guard, I would tell you to watch Steve Nash. Why is that? Uh, Steve Nash was fundamentally sound, played the game the right way. Um, he wasn't the greatest defender, uh, but he could do everything. He could score at all three levels. He could finish around the rim. He always had his head on a swivel, could see plays develop before they even did. I mean, phenomenal passer. Uh, he, he, he was one of my favorites at, at, that, at that position by far. How about if you're, if you're a two or three guard, a wing player? Is there a guy who comes to mind right away? Yeah, easy. Michael. Michael or, or Kobe. Easily. And I mean, Kobe emulated this game after Michael. But when you think about Michael, uh, people think about Michael's raw athleticism, which was phenomenal. But I would, I would tell the player that was watching him, I would say, watch his feet. Uh, Michael was fundamentally sound, and he, understand, he understood how to attack defenders. He had great footwork. He could score from all three levels. He could post guards. He could shoot a turnaround jumper over both shoulders. He understood how to attack, how to attack defenders. Uh, based on how they were closing out on him, whether, you know, and, and their lead foot and their lead shoulder. Um, you know, I was actually had my sons in the driveway yesterday and we were working on attacking the lead foot uh, of a guy who had a bad closeout. Uh, and those are the little things that I don't think people see that, that Jordan and, and Kobe did at that two guard spot. And, and they're with ferocious competitors. You took the words right out of my mouth. They're almost manic. Yeah. yeah I'm, I, I, listen, they were, I, I think they were mentally ill. I mean, to be able to want to compete at that level, uh, there, there's something ha something has to be wrong with you, you know. And, and and it's not a bad wrong. It's it's a it's a great thing when you can apply it to something that you're really really good at. Um, and they were they were driven to a, at a level that I'd never seen anyone compete ever. Have you ever had a player who had that? I mean, obviously the NBA is a different level of. Uh you know, tenacity, but have you had a player who's been that hyper-competitive who kind of matched that type of approach to basketball? Uh, a few, two jump out in my, in my mind right away. Uh, uh, Javon Woodyard, who was a point guard on the 2019 team uh, last year, uh, not this past season, but last year, and uh, Javon Murphy. Uh, J Murphy wanted to win so bad, he, when he came out of games, he would, he would, he would cry. And it, it, I mean, he would sit on the bench and and he would be sometimes emotionally distraught until he got back in the game because he wanted to compete so bad. How has I mean I, I love stories like that. How has basketball, you know, someone who played in college has been coaching now for a long time. How have the lessons you've learned both as a player and a coach infused your teaching uh, and you know, even as a father? What what has basketball done for your life? Well, you know, basketball is a, is analogous to life. Um, you know, I think about, you know, I'm kind of a rags to riches story, you know, uh, didn't, didn't play basketball in high school, played in some local leagues with men, um, got an opportunity to play in college and I was always behind the eight ball. And when I was given the workout regimen that I was given, it was like, all right, this is what I need you to do. Um, this is what I need you to eat. This is how I need you to train. You know, I stuck to those things and. And I would even, you know, we would have a crazy hard practice and then I would stay after practice until I made, you know, 203 point shots. And, you know, then I would go shower and go study or hang out with, you know, my teammates or whatever when I was in college. You know, I think about 
what I had to do and how I had to develop to get where I am. And I'm still driven. I'm still competitive. I'm still that passionate today. Um, and I apply those things to, to every area of my life. I don't want to lose at anything. I don't want to lose a student. I don't want to see a student get held back. I want to see students be successful. So um, when I think about the kids that I have and the messages that I give them, they're, they're genuine. They are from the heart. Um, I am familiar with the streets that they come from. And I try to I try to find a way to inspire them. You know, I try to give them stories um, of, of, you know, my own childhood, my own upbringing that are relatable to them. Um, you know, talk about personal experiences in middle school, personal experiences that I may have, have had in elementary school, you know, talk about my high school experience uh, from time to time. And they can uh, they can relate to that. Um, and 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 not for nothing, you know, many of them, you know, it's it's a blessing to have kids that are in the system right now, because a lot of them, a lot, some of those students are familiar with my sons. So it, it makes it a little easier to, to, to deliver an education, to be a support for those students uh, and for them to have uh, trust in me. It's incredible because I mean, if they don't have a role model, like someone like you in their lives, then the type of society that we've allowed to, uh, worsen in a place like York where we have, I mean, you can overlay, and you and I have talked about this, a, a, a map of redlining with a map of poverty, and they're basically synonymous. I mean, this is structural and institutional racism in many ways, and there really hasn't been much economic growth in the past several decades. I mean, I went down to York City, this was probably back in January, but was knocking on doors, and um, I just noticed a lot of apathy and there were several people who basically told me that, you know, we've seen candidates come through our, our town before. We've met people like you who've come to our door. There are still shootings on my street corner. Minimum wage is still $7.25. There's still unfair housing laws and, uh, and these inequalities in place. And they've almost lost sight of um, or even just faith in, in the system. And I don't blame them at all. But uh, for you to come through that system, not only come through it, but then thrive and then come back to other students and help them do the same is really inspirational. Um, what would you say, you know, I, I'm sure we could pick a ton of issues, but if you were sitting down with a public official who doesn't uh, know what you've been through and what your players and students are going through, what would you tell them? Where would you start in terms of giving them advice as to how to help your community? Uh, I would start with a quote by Gandhi. A nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. And when, you know, I think about government at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level, I think more often than not, to me, the pulse of, of my community is that politicians have forgotten about the middle class, have forgotten about the people who are on the other end of the social economic uh, spectrum. And many of them are owned by lobbyists. You know, these lobbyists have, you know, are lying in their pockets and that's where they focus their interests. Um, so 
if I mean, in a, in a nutshell, that that's what I'd say to them. So, I mean, when you think about politicians coming to our neighborhoods and you talk about, you know, some of the conversations that you have with them and how they respond to you, um, they are apathetic. They, they, it's going to be very difficult for them to trust you um, because for them, their day is comprised of waking up, figuring out how to get their kids to school, figuring out what their kids are going to eat, going to work, coming home, making sure that their electric is not turned off, making sure that the gas is turned on and the kids have heat, making sure that they, you know Johnny's feet, Johnny's hitting puberty now. He's going from a size 10 to a size 12, and you have to figure out how to get new shoes for the kids. Um, so all of these things, you know, I sit down and you know I I'm. I, I try to stay abreast of what's going on in the world. You know, I'm I'm, I'm watching all the news networks on, on a day-to-day basis to pay attention to what's going on. I don't, I don't think there's been a more important time in our in our in our country's history and politics than now. So, you know, I'm I'm paying the most attention that I ever have. Um, I, I think for there's a large population uh, of people that aren't. Um, they don't watch the news. Um, they don't believe that that the media is 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 our friend um but i i believe that, you know, in the media i believe that people should pay attention to what's going on and do their own research so they can take a look at all sides um but i think that uh politicians have to do a better job of getting the pulse of 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 the people the people that are working the minimum wage jobs the people that make this country grow the people i mean go i mean right now as you can see uh a large part of our country is shut down and things are different for a lot of people because people took for granted uh, the jobs that people do in uh, those essential businesses. And then we, we think about our economy right now, how our economy is, is beginning to struggle. You think about a lot of those small businesses that are being affected by the essential orders uh, of the governor and them not being able to function and operate. You think about our struggling restaurant business right now. Uh, and you think about a lot of those mom and pop stores or those mom and pop small restaurants, some of them may never ever be able to recover. And I think there's too much attention paid to the other end. I, I do not believe in top down, trickle down economics. I don't believe that we should bail out these big banks and these big companies and that if we don't, that our company, that our, that our, our, our economy is going to crumble. I don't believe that for a second. You know, more often than not, these countries are get these these companies are getting these big bailouts, and they take the money, and they ultimately cut a portion of of their of their staff, and and the CEOs or you know the owners they take a big bonus. It, it baffles me how you know they can just play with our tax dollars like that. It's it's incredible to me. No, it's, I mean, everything about our tax system and our economy, even more broadly, is backwards. Uh, you know, finally, after this pandemic hit, there was a, you know, the, the $2 trillion stimulus package, but $500 billion of that goes to major corporations who can use it as they please with no restrictions. Um, you know, we're not actually giving, you know, and here's the irony, Clovis, is that we had a definition of uh, critical professions before the pandemic and after the pandemic, those have been flipped, right? If you're a postal worker, if you're a cashier, if you're a service worker, you are the lifeblood of the country right now. You sure we are. literally could not survive without them. Um, 
Whereas if you're a C-suite executive, you're home hanging out, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to go to work. Mm -hmm. There's not one particular person that relies on you, but everybody else who is already struggling to get by is forced to keep the country going. It's really a cruel irony. It, it really is. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a wake up call to everyone as to, you know, how important some of these jobs that people may believe are menial or, you know, uh, you know, minimum wage jobs, but how, how important they are. Um, it's one of the messages. Ever, go, go ahead. I was going to say, do you ever have any conversations with either your players or your students about public service or about politics? I mean, one of the things I've just found really interesting in studying uh, politics, you know, in, in America is that oftentimes, you know, it really is young people who start movements. You know, Martin Luther King was 26 when he started the Montgomery bus boycott. John Lewis was 20 when he joined the Freedom Riders. Uh, you know, even Frederick Douglass was freed as a slave at 20 and started the abolitionist movement. The founders were, you know, 25, 30 years old um, when they revolted. Uh, a lot of movements in this country come from young people. I've tried to do my best to show the next generation that they have real power. But do these types of conversations come up with your students and your players? My, my students are, I, 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 sometimes they just, they, they impress me when I least expect it. Uh, and, and, and along with my players, I, I do and I don't. I have to be very careful uh, because as an educator, I have um, a very, very strong influence. Um, and, and oftentimes you don't realize how much of an influence you do have on a kid until, you know, a kid reaches back to you or somebody writes you a letter or I get a message on Facebook or somebody tags me in a post about a lesson or a lesson they learned or a, a message that I gave to them during their, uh, you know, tenure in high school that stuck with them, that resonated with them. Uh, so I, I do have those conversations and I try to, I do my best to really remain objective um, because I, I try to just provide information and I try to give them resources to be able to go research uh, the information that they're seeking or the discussion of the topic that they're having. I mean, obviously the current, the current president um, is, is a hot topic of discussion and, you know, kids would often come to class and want to have a discussion about an interaction and exchange something that was said to him or by him. And yes, we'd have a discussion about it. And and we would really I would really try to guide them to look at things from multiple perspectives. And it, I know it it's not. It's virtually impossible to leave my my personal bias out of it, but I really try hard to do that because I don't want to influence them. I want them to be able to seek out information on their own and rest on their own judgments. Have um, you know? You, I've read statistics where um, you know there's been a pretty significant increase in hate crimes uh, and racially related crime since Trump got elected. Have you seen an increase in in those types of interactions at, at the schools over the past few years? Uh, I absolutely have. Uh, not at the school per se, but I've definitely uh, seen and heard more and more of, 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 of encounters or negative interactions of people, definitely people more emboldened. Um, uh, I think he, I think Donald Trump represents and speaks for a uh, population uh, of our society that it feels right now like they're they're liberated, like they can openly speak freely about how they feel. 
um, and he represents them. Uh, you know, I personally had, uh, you know, what I call an instance of, uh, I don't want to say blatant out and out racism, but it was definitely a microaggression that could definitely be connected to that. You know, I went, I went to, uh, Atlanta this summer and, and I was actually staying on a golf course. I rented the house for a group of guys and, uh, you know, we were golfing for a few days and, you know, I decided to take a stroll down the golf course on a, on a Saturday morning after having breakfast. And, uh, I was approached by one of the golfers there. He basically said to me in a nutshell, you don't belong here. And I was like, uh, the, the exchange went south. I'll just say that. Uh, and you know, I remain professional. I, I could have went, I could have been, went the other way, but I, 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 I basically said in a nutshell, I guess this is, uh, Trump's new America. And, and, and I guess, uh, uh, I said, I said, your micro microaggressions aren't, aren't welcome. And I said, I'm actually staying in a house right here. And I, I walked away and that was that, but yeah. Well, I, I mean, and that's not even, I don't need, I don't, I'm not sure I'd even classify that as a microaggression. That seems like overt racism to me. Um, but it's a testament to your character to respond the way you did. And it goes back to just what we were talking about in the beginning about being a role model for these kids and being someone they can come to and trust when they encounter a situation similar on their own. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's an amazing story, Clovis. And um, I just want to in these last minute or two, or minute or two, um, while while folks are home, um, do you have any advice on a good book, something to watch, something that people might not know about right now, but that has impacted your life in a significant way that you would encourage someone to donate some time to? Uh, well, the the the, uh, the book uh, that I'm reading is the title just escaped me just like that. <laughs> Incredible. Um, Oh, I'm reading Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow right now. Mm. I just picked that up. And, uh, How is it? Very good, actually. And he has a podcast. So while I was driving, I listened to the podcast a little bit, and it goes along with the reading. I also i am watching a series on Netflix. I usually don't watch too much TV, but uh, I'm watching the Ozark series right now. So I'm definitely knee-deep in that. I have three episodes. I've been just watching that for the last couple of days. That's just I, my, for pure uh, entertainment my brothers purposes. Are in it too. I got to dive in. <laughs> but no, but it's uh, if I could recommend one too. The um, have you seen the Malcolm X documentary on Netflix? I have not seen it. I did hear about oh, it. Oh man, A plus. A plus. A plus. I have to check it out. Is, that uh, might be next. It's a it's a good time for content. You know, if we're home. Yes. It's uh, that's a silver lining. But um, Clovis, I could talk with you all night. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to have gotten to know you over these past several months. Uh, your students and players are lucky to have you. And, you know, once we get through this on the other side, they'll be lucky to, or thrilled to see you in person again. But uh, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.